Well, praise the Lord. Grab, grab the mic, Huntley, and come on over just for a second. Um, you know, we, we clap for Huntley, and boy, he's talented, isn't he? Any thought I ever had of taking piano lessons just went <laughs> right out the window. Because I just forget it, you know? I can't even match that. I just, I feel led. I just wanted you to give them a couple minutes. Tell them the story about Tbilisi, would you? Sure. Oh, because no. I, I just think it fits yeah. on how the Lord works yes. and how he answers prayer. Could you do that? Sure, I'd love to. You know, God is truly a great God. I just got back um, from Tbilisi, went over with Franklin Graham. And um, when we got to Germany, we heard that we're having some issues in Tbilisi. I said, what kind of issues? They said, well, we have to find a new venue because um, there was a fire at the venue. So we said, oh, a fire? Really? Okay, well, they'll put the fire out and we'll have our crusade, you know, a festival. Anyway, we got to Tbilisi, which is in Georgia. It's part of the former Soviet Union. And all of a sudden, we discovered that there were major forces who did not want us to spread the gospel there. And first, what they decided to do was try to stop the meeting. That did not work. So they said, well, let's burn the venue. So they burned it, and it did not work. So we would try to find a few different places. And we contacted like 15 different locations. And each time the team got there to sign the documents, they said, no, 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 no. Every single place we went, they said no. So we got the message that they did not want to have the ministry there. So finally, they decided to have it in a courtyard of a church. Now, you have seen the Billy Graham Crusades, so you know there are thousands of people who show. We had like a 500-voice choir, a 50-piece orchestra. We lost many members from the orchestra. Here's why. We discovered the Georgian Orthodox Church was one of the major forces fighting against us. And they, they threatened their members with being excommunicated from the church which in that culture has serious meaning. That means you cannot take part in any church activity, no weddings, no funerals. They basically saying you're going to hell. So the members had to think about, do I want to go to hell according to their teaching or do I want to be a part of the festival? So we lost some members. But anyway, the festival still went forward. And here's one, another interesting thing i got to share, Paul. They told us that there would be zero chance of rain. Zero but each evening before, or each afternoon before everything began, sound check, I looked above the church. Dark clouds would gather over the place. And all of a sudden, we'd feel a few raindrops. You see the lightning in the sky. And then the worship started, and it would go away. So the first evening it happened, we didn't think much of it. The second time it happened, I'm like, hmm, something is going on. And then all of a sudden, Michael W. Smith, you know the singer was there. And all of a sudden, Michael said to the choir, you know, just join me in the song, um, uh, Agnes, the hallelujah, worthy is the lamb. And we physically witnessed when they started worshiping the Lord, the skies parted and blue skies came over. And when the invitation was given for the entire week, we had about over a thousand people accept Jesus Christ. You know, it, there's something about music. There's something about just praising the Lord that just encourages your soul, right? The Bible says that he delights in the praises of his people, that God in heaven this morning, the one who formed the universe, the one who formed us out of dust, is happy now that he got to hear us praise him. And that's an incredible thought that we just um, take joy in this morning. But the Spirit of God also has the responsibility of teaching and training and correcting and encouraging us 
in the Word of God. So it's always important and valuable to spend time, just a little bit of study, uh, and how we can apply it to our lives. That, that brings us to kind of an obscure passage this morning, and I debated with the Lord for quite a while, like, is this really what you want us to study this morning? It doesn't seem to fit with, uh, with what we're doing. And yet, as I was thinking about the, the story about Tbilisi, and how that ministry uh, in Georgia had been covered by prayer for so long, it affirmed it to me that the Lord wanted us to spend a little time in this passage this morning. So Judges chapter 11 and 12, let's take our Bibles and turn there. Kind of an odd text, um, but it really does speak some application to us. We've been in this series about 10 people you might not know from Scripture. And um, so far we've looked at people who are commendable for their character and for their actions and for standing strong for the Lord. But this morning we're going to look at somebody who had the Lord's blessing, who clearly had the hand of God on his life, who should have had a powerful influence, as we studied last week, a powerful influence on those around him. But he made a very, very impulsive and foolish decision. And while the account of Jephthah's life is a little tragic on the surface, and it's hard not to read this text and just kind of be struck by, by sadness and by irony in terms of what happens, there are some really valuable spiritual principles here for us um, that remind us how wise it is, as we saw with the story of Tbilisi, how wise it is to seek the Lord and how wise it is to constantly trust in Him to provide. This is kind of a cautionary tale for us, kind of something that should grab our hearts a little bit and say, oh, I got to be careful in terms of, of the need for wisdom and, and spiritual judgment from God. So there's a lot here. I want to encourage you, chapters 11 and 12, take them over the next few days, read them, study them. Uh, we're just going to kind of scratch the surface this morning. Um, but let's start here in chapter 11 and read verses 1 to 3. Now Jephthah the Gilead was a valiant warrior, but he was the son of a harlot. And Gilead was the father of Jephthah. Gilead's wife bore him sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance at in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows gathered themselves around Jephthah, and they went out with him. Let's stop there after verse 3. Now, this is not a great start, is it? He doesn't exactly have a sterling resume that you want to brag about. Nothing in these verses, nothing in these first three verses kind of speaks goodness. You wouldn't expect much from this guy because it says that his mother was a harlot. He apparently was a product of her temporary relationship with her father, Gilead. So there was a stigma around his character. Socially, this was known about him. He was a bit of an outcast, not only socially, but within his family. Because it says his brothers, when they all got older, kind of said to him, you don't belong here. It's kind of like, remember Sesame Street? One of these things is not like the other. One of these things doesn't belong. Well, Jephthah didn't belong. And they're looking out for themselves. They're looking out for their cash. And they're saying, look, your mom is not our mom. It was kind of an auspicious relationship that our dad had with your mom. She's not around anymore. Why are you here? You don't belong here. And you know what? You're never getting our inheritance. 
You're, you're an outcast. You, you don't belong in our presence. And they force him out of the house. So Jephthah goes to the land, the area of Tob, which is kind of uh, southeast of the Sea of Galilee, if you know your map of Israel. And, and the only friends, it says in verse 2, that he can find are worthless fellows. Now, I, I thought that's an interesting phrase, so I looked it up in the Hebrew. Worthless fellows meant they had an immoral character and they had no real purpose for their lives. So Jephthah has a bad character reputation. He's separated from his family in many ways. He's literally separated because his brothers reject him and kick him out. He has no inheritance to speak of, and he goes into a strange place, and while he's in the strange place, the only people that are hanging around with him are people of immoral character who have no real purpose for their lives. Doesn't seem like it's going too well for him, does it? Doesn't seem like he's got a lot to write home about, not that there's anybody to write home to. And he doesn't get off to a good start and when that happens, when you get things like that in your life, it really messes with your head, doesn't it? And if we're not careful, it can mess with our walk. But how many know that no matter what's in your past, the Lord can redeem it and move it past it? God can take anything in your past, anything you're ashamed of, anything you're embarrassed by, anything that's a stigma on you, and he can help you overcome it. How do I know that's true? Because anyone in this room who claims the name of Jesus Christ as their Savior is a living example of that. I've got tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of sins. I can't even count them. The Lord knows how many there are. But all those sins have been released. All those sins have been erased. All those sins have been forgiven. And if God can do that with my life and with your life, then he can erase the stigma of anything in your past. He can help you move past that and become a person who walks with God. Now, there's no question that Jephthah has a lousy past. But he doesn't let that define him. Instead, I want you to notice that he gains an understanding of the Lord and God blesses that. See, so many times we can be become preoccupied with the junk in our life. So often we can become preoccupied with our failure and our insufficiency and, and that we're worthless. I was talking to a, a pastor this week. I was at a pastor's conference down in Chicago. And he said, I am just, I just can't believe how worthless I feel sometimes after I preach. I drive home and I think, I hurt the church. Now, if you heard this guy preach, you would never say you hurt the church by preaching. But it struck me again, and I talked to pastor after pastor, and it was the same kind of thought. Why did God do this in my life? I'm not worthy of that. You know what? There's nothing wrong with feeling unworthy. You know why? Because it humbles us before the Lord, and we realize how great God's grace and mercy is, and how we are unworthy, and yet Christ is worthy. How many know that's true? Yeah, let's clap for him. Don't hesitate. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive all power and glory and dominion in heaven and on earth. In other words, we are nothing. Our sin drags us down into nothing. But because Christ died for our sins, because he's worthy, now he says, Rhodes, you're worthy. And I know in my heart I'm not, but God says it, so it has to be true. God can bring us past anything in our past. 
And when we study how good he's been and how faithful he's been, and, and in spite of our failure and in spite of our insufficiency, when we trust him and we praise him and we say, great are you, God, great are you, God, you're the one who deserves all the glory because you're the one who has delivered me. When we do that, when that gets into our heart, listen now, he opens up doors of opportunity and he opens up doors of blessing where we will be used in ways we can't imagine. But we have to be looking for those. Now this is what happens with Jephthah. He's banished. He's pushed out. He doesn't have anybody to fall back on. And it seems like nothing's going to happen. We could stop at verse 3 and just say, oh well, this guy had a hard life. But there's a crisis that comes and the Lord knows the crisis. War breaks out in Israel. This is in verses 4 and beyond. We're not going to read it because of time. But let me, let me summarize it for you and you can skim along. War breaks out in Israel. The Amorites come along and they decide that they want to rumble with Israel, that they're kind of tired of Israel and they want to start a fight. And the Amorites were a strong nation. They were to the, to the east of the Jordan River, halfway between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. So if you can kind of picture that in your mind, they're over in the, in the east region, just east of the Jordan. And the Amorites decide that they want to fight with Israel. Now, they were constantly in irritation. They, they constantly kind of antagonized Israel. And they worshiped a god named Moloch. Everybody say Moloch, so I know you get it, all right? Moloch, this, this is an important detail for later, because under their religion, they believed that Moloch demanded a child sacrifice by parents in order to appease him. Now, just lock that piece of information away just for a couple minutes. So the Amorites are fighting with the Israelites. The Amorites worship Moloch. Moloch demands child sacrifice. Now, Jephthah's minding his own business over in Tob, which is just north of the Amorites, and he's kind of going about his life when the leaders of Gilead, his own family, come over and they say, look, we got a problem. The Amorites are fighting with us and we need your help. In fact, we not only need your help because you're a valiant warrior, we need you to be the captain. We need you to lead us in this battle. Now, imagine what you would feel in that moment. You've been kicked out, told you're scum, told nobody wants you around, told you don't get any inheritance, told you just need to go away. And as soon as a crisis comes, they come over to you and say, you know what, we were just kind of kidding. We, we, we actually do need you. We, we need you to help us. In fact, we need you to lead us. Isn't it funny how people use you when it's convenient for them? And then they act like you owe them. Well, that's what his family does. Oh, Jephthah, oh, buddy, we've missed you. You know, you imagine the back slapping. Oh, buddy, we missed you. We were just, we didn't mean all that stuff. You know, stuff, stuff happened. It kind of came over us, and we were messed up. We were having some dysfunction in our family, but we really do need you. Why do you need me? Well, you know, the Amorites are coming over, and, 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 and you're a pretty good, pretty good guy, and you're a valiant warrior, and we could use your help. And when they get to the bottom line, and there's kind of that sense of entitlement. You can only imagine what Jeff is feeling. In fact, when they say we want you to help us, he wants to do just the opposite. I got to believe he wants to tell them to get lost. Hey, you guys kicked me out. You didn't say you needed me. Now you need me? Forget it. I'm not going to help you. 
Why would I help you? Why would I give you any of my ability, any of my strength, any of my leadership? You don't deserve that. I mean, imagine the thoughts that are churning in his heart. And in fact, if you look at verse 7, just glance at it. He tells them, you've hurt me. You, you banished me. And now he says, you guys want me to come lead you? Uh, don't, didn't you show hate to me? And now you want me to get mixed up in your problem? Really? Seriously? That's what you want? I mean, that's a legitimate response, right? How many of us would have that response? I think my response would be even a little bit stronger than that. So in verse 9, he says, fine, I'll help you. But here's the condition. If we win, then I get to lead the whole army. Let's talk about some remuneration, some restoration here, okay? If we win, I'll do this. I'll make a deal with you. I'll do this. But if we win, I'm in charge. They say, great. That's how bad the problem was. And then he sends word to the Amorites, and he says, what's your problem? Look, what did we do to you? Why, why are you deciding that you want to have a fight now? Let's, let's, let's figure out, because we don't understand why you're bugging us. And the response is classic, and the response is the exact same thing we're reading in the news right now, July 20, 2014. The Amorites send word back, and they say, you took our land and we want it back. Does that sound familiar to anybody? All throughout history, people have been saying to Israel, you took our land and we want it back. And they forget that the Bible says that God said to Abraham, you've got that land, that's yours. You're my people, that's your land. And whatever happens in the news right now, we know because we've read the end, right? Israel's not losing that land. I hate to tell Syria and Iran and Iraq and everybody else. Israel's not losing that land. That's their land. God promised it to Abraham. And here's the thing. Jephthah knows that. He knows the biblical history. Just glance uh, from about verse 7 on down, I don't know, to about uh, 15 or 20. He gives, he gives the king of Amna, uh, excuse me, the king of the Amorites a little history lesson. He says, listen, I know about God's provision, and I believe in God's provision. Remember that. That's another important detail. And he says, let me tell you, I, uh, when Israel came up out of Egypt... We asked to pass through the land. We were trying to get to Canaan, and we asked to pass through the land. And the kings of Edom and Moab, who were there at the time, both said no. So we had to take a little detour. We had to go on the other side of the Jordan, and we had to go up through the land of the Amorites. And when we got up there, we sent a message to the king, and we said, can we pass through? Look, the Moabites and the Edomites were on the south. They both said no. So can we come up and just go through because God's sending us to Canaan and we just need to get through your area to get to Canaan. We're not going to bug you. Just, just let us drive by. And the king of Amorites not only said no, but he engaged them in war. But God had a plan. And God gave Israel victory because he was leading them. Listen, that is foundational to any victory in our lives. Victory, moral, personal, spiritual, only comes when God is leading us. 
There are temporary victories, there are hollow victories, there are materialistic victories that the devil uses to make us think, well, if you just do it your own way, you'll have victory, you don't need God. That's a lie all the way back to Genesis 3. The only victories that we have, personally, morally, or spiritually, is when God is leading us. And here's the thing, Jephthah knew that. He said, even though Israel was unfaithful and they didn't have faith, the Lord had a plan for them and he made promises to them and he fulfilled that. So when they acted righteously and called on for him for help, he blessed them. He knew that truth. Now he goes back to them, and this is in verse, 20, uh, verse 28. He goes back to them and says, we've done nothing wrong. You started the war, so, so let the Lord judge who's right. And this is what they say. But the king of the sons of Ammon disregarded the message which Jephthah sent him. Now let's stop for a second because we're about to conclude, but let's, let's just reset this for a minute. As of verse 29, Jephthah's on the right track. He isn't holding a grudge after dealing with injustice. He's not controlled by his past. He's deferring to the Lord. He remembers how God has helped Israel before especially when they trusted him and called out to him. And then verse 29 tells us that he had one more powerful advantage. The other powerful advantage he had was that the spirit of the Lord was on him. How many know there's nothing better than that? There is nothing better than that. There is nothing we should want more right now, today, July 20th. There is nothing you should crave more than the Spirit of the Lord would be on us. Because you know what that means? It means we're sanctified and God's pleased with us. The Spirit of the Lord was on Jephthah. And that makes what happens next seem even more curious and sad. But there's an important spiritual principle for us here. And let me give it to you before we read. The important spiritual principle, and this is so basic, but listen, don't miss this, okay? The Lord has really impressed this upon my heart this week. Here's the spiritual principle. We should never stop calling on the Lord for help and leading. It is our first, best, and only priority. We should never stop calling on the Lord. And how do we know that's true? We'll look at verse 29. Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah so that he passed through Gilead and Manasseh. And he passed through Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he went on to the sons of Ammon. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand, then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's and I will offer up as a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the sons of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. He struck them with a very great slaughter from Azor to the entrance of Mizma, excuse me, Minna. Sorry, I'm having trouble seeing. Twenty cities and as far as Abel Kerem. So the sons of Ammon were subdued before the sons of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his house in Mizpah. Behold, his daughter was coming out to meet him with tambourines and with dancing. Now she was his one and only child. Besides her, he had no son or daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you brought me very low, and you are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word of the Lord, and I cannot take it back. She said to him, Father, you've given your word of the Lord. Do to me as you've said, since the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the sons of Ammon. 
Now, there are two facts I want to just highlight, and we're going to pray. There are two facts here that highlight why Jephthah made a poor and very costly decision and what we can learn from it. And they're subtle. The first one is in verse 30, where Jephthah says to the Lord, if you will indeed give me victory over the Ammonites. Here's the problem with that. There is an equivocation of faith in that sentence. And it shows that there's a level of distrust and a level of doubt in his heart. Even though God had been faithful, even though God had honored his life, there was no reason for a lack of confidence, especially because verse 29 tells us that the Spirit of the Lord was on him. Now, the same is true for us, and this is why we need to have bold confidence at all times. Because if the Spirit of the Lord is on us, and the Spirit of the Lord is on you if you're saved, right? When you're saved, God changes you, transforms your nature, eliminates the sin, puts in his Holy Spirit, he indwells, and he fills us. So anybody who is saved has the Holy Spirit on them. And if that's true, then there's no reason to ever doubt the Lord. See, the joy of knowing and trusting the Lord is that we never, ever, ever, say it with me, ever have to doubt his love and his mercy and his provision. Never. Believe that this morning. We never have to doubt him. There is nothing that is sure in life, but the one thing that is, is that God has an unchanging, holy, faithful character, and he loves his children and he'll never fail them. Jephthah should have known that, but he's hesitant to trust and he shows that he's still not sure the Lord's going to help him defeat an evil enemy. And he puts conditions on the Lord and he kind of bargains with him. All right, Lord, I tell you what. You give me this victory. You really give me this victory. I'll make a deal with you. The first thing that comes out of my house, I'll give it to you. I remember back when I was younger, I used to pray like that. How many, don't raise your hands, it'll be embarrassing. How many have prayed like that at some point? I remember praying about the girl I was dating or about the test I was taking or about the, the game I was about to play. Oh, Lord, if you will just give me victory today in this tennis match, I will commit my life to you because I know this tennis match is that important. That's the prayer of immaturity. That's the prayer of kind of treating God's blessing like a bargaining chip instead of saying, Lord, I know you're faithful and I know your will's going to be done and I'm going to trust you no matter what because you are a gracious and loving God and you'll help me. As believers, we've got to move past that, that conditional faith-deprived prayer and we've got to call on the name of the Lord with humble boldness and confident assurance. And then you see the second problem in verse 31. Because what Jephthah offers as his payment to God for God helping him is impulsive and ill-advised and, and it's kind of spiritually irrational. He says, all right, Lord, if you give me victory, whatever walks out of my house when I get back to the victory, I'll sacrifice to God. Now, that seems on the surface like it's commendable, but there are a bunch of problems with it. First of all, it's highly unlikely that when he comes back that the first thing to walk out of his front door will be an ox or a sheep because that's what you'd normally sacrifice, right? So when the door opens, mm, here comes a big bull coming through the front door. 
So he's not thinking rationally. What exactly does he think is going gonna, is gonna to walk out that's going to be an acceptable sacrifice to God? If a dog or a cat or a pig walks out, he can't offer them because they're unclean. He has to know that there's great potential for a person to walk out, which will not only be harsh to him and harsh to the person, but the Lord would reject that sacrifice because he never affirms or accepts human sacrifice. Remember, that's what Moloch wanted. Moloch said, offer your children to me. Burn them as a sacrifice. Innocent flesh. No way the Lord would accept that. And Jephthah should have known that. But look at the last reason. And this is the most important. It's where we get our application. Instead of making an impulsive, unwise vow, Jephthah should have first sought the Lord confidently. And then before he even went to battle, he should have offered a sacrifice, a proper sacrifice to the Lord. Instead, he puts it on the back end. And he says, I tell you what, you give me victory and I'll give back. You know what? The Lord doesn't work that way. Deny yourself daily. Take up your cross. Follow me. He should have made the sacrifice before the battle because that's always better. Have you ever thought about, and let me be done with this, have you ever thought about why we worship and give and praise before the message? You ever wonder why we have that order? It's because singing and praising prepares our hearts. It gives us the right perspective. It gets our minds off ourselves and on the goodness of God. When we saw those words flashing on the screen, holy, glorious, triumphant, omnipotent, omnipresent, I, I don't know about you guys, but that stirred my heart. I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's the God I serve right there. With all the junk I've seen this week, all the words I've heard this week, all the stress I've had this week, to be able to come in and look at those words and say, that's my Savior right there. That, that's who my Savior is. That, that, that lifts us up, right? Come on, let me hear an amen to that. That strengthens us. Whatever you face this week, your God is omnipotent. Whatever you face this week, your God is omnipresent. Whatever you face this week, he's triumphant and holy and glorious and gracious and loving and merciful. And we need that confidence because without that, we fall right back into self. So why do we worship before we hear from the Holy Spirit? Because it prepares our hearts so we say, Lord, you're right, I'm worthless, but you've saved me, and you're gracious, and I want to praise you. Now feed me. Jephthah knew that. He knew that there's power in the Lord. He knew that there's confidence in the Lord. And he still would have won the battle if he had done it right, but he wouldn't have lost his daughter. Because when we walk down the path of compromise, we're on our own. Listen, if we're going to be strong in spiritual warfare, if we're going to be powerful and effective in our witness for Christ, we can't be making unwise, selfish, impulsive decisions that exclude the Lord. Instead, we need to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Tell me the rest. And all these things will be added to you. Seek him first. Self-sufficiency is the enemy of faith. But when we seek the Lord, he is always gracious and always loving. Amen?